so that's really a lot of what First Timothy is about, is, is adjusting the way that this church is looking at things. Because, you know, they, they had some problems, right? They, they had uh, false teachings. They had um, some leaders that weren't really doing what they were commanded to do. And they weren't really strengthening the church, which we'll see here in just a moment. So let's get into the actual passage and see how how the church in Ephesus was really starting to, to go astray. And again, the whole book is about this, so this is kind of a foundation um, as we start going into the study of 1 Timothy. So I'm going to have a lot of different scripture references, but we won't dig into those, but those are scripture passages that will come up later as we're going through things. But let's go through the main passage here in 1 Timothy uh, 1, 3 through 7. We'll read the first couple of, of verses. And I'm reading from the NIV 84, by the way. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, and this is Paul talking to Timothy, stay in Ephesus so that, that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. So we can probably assume that there, there were other issues besides this, um, because if you start getting doctrine that is not sound, there are other things that flow out of that. And we don't have a lot of detail, but these are the things that Paul is telling Timothy, you need to correct these things for this church. And what are the things that we see? We see three of them there, right? We see that they had false doctrines, they were devoted to myths and endless genealogies, and promoting controversies. So we'll, we'll cover each one of those very briefly. So we don't have a lot of detail about what the false doctrine is here. We just know that there's false doctrines that are being, being taught. And we see this a lot in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, as the church in the first century was forming, you had folks who were from a Jewish background who wanted to bring the Mosaic law onto new believers um, there were also places where you had pagans coming into the church, and a lot of the times they wanted to bring their pagan beliefs with them and, you know, have a, well, I want both of them. We, we don't really know for sure. It doesn't go into detail of what the doctrinal issues were, but we do see it was false doctrine being taught. We also see, and I found this interesting, right? So if we go back to verse 4, nor devote themselves to myths. And that word devote kind of caught my attention, right? Because you think about devotion, that word devote. You're devoted to your wife, you're devoted to your family. Some folks are devoted to their jobs um, or to golf or whatever. You have something you're devoted to. And what does that mean? That means it's something really important to you, right? That you're going to pour your time, your energy into, that you're going to hold on to it. So these these people in this church, they were devoting themselves to these myths and genealogies. Now, the, the thing to know about the genealogies, um, and I won't go too deep into this, but those folks coming from the Jewish tradition, remember, you, you could only be a teacher of the law if you came from the correct tribe. With all of the dispersions um, that had happened, captivities for the Jewish nation, there was a lot of doubt cast on this over the centuries, right? Especially you think about when, you know, they were in the Babylonian captivity. 
So it was hard for the, the Jewish people to know, hey, is this person of the right line to be teaching? Right? And again, th this is something that they were bringing from the Mosaic law in and making a doctrine out of it. Right? They were making an issue of this. Um, when it talks about the myth, these are again just sort of probably some of those pagan beliefs or other Jewish traditions that they're bringing into there. So they're making a huge deal out of this, right? Where it's not supported anywhere else in scripture about these things being required for certain things. You know, you think about uh, when non-Jewish folks, Gentiles would come in, they have to be circumcised, they have to obey the Jewish law, the kosher laws, et cetera, et cetera, right? It could be those things that are being brought in. And they're devoting themselves to this. They're making that, that core to what they believe and what they're teaching. So what we see is that their focus was off, right? They're, they're teaching false doctrines. They're devoting themselves, putting their energy into these genealogies and myths, right? And it goes on, if we look at the rest of the passage, that talking about these, these myths and genealogies, these promote controversy rather than God's work, which is by faith. Now, the Greek there is a little bit difficult to to interpret because it, it's it's um, it doesn't translate well into the English. But there's two possible interpretations of that, and neither one of them contradict each other, right? So the way that could be read, that fourth part is that um, th their focus is on these things that they want to teach and they're not promoting God's work which could be read as um, the work the, the work of the spirit inside people right that that uh, journey of sanctification the work that the spirit does after regenerating our hearts you know as we continue on that journey these folks were impeding that it could also be interpreted as they were impeding God's work, the work that we should do externally, you know, works of service, works of discipleship, things like that. So it could be read either way, but they're basically saying the same thing. They weren't focused on God's work. They were focused on their work, right? So they had the wrong focus of what they were, they were looking at. And in doing so, they were being negligent. These are the teachers who are put up to instruct and disciple the people of the church in Ephesus. And rather than discipling them, growing them, creating an environment where there was mutual edification for people in the church and training them for the good works of service, they were getting caught in these, these controversies. Right? So again, they were being negligent of their charge as leaders in the church. We do that today as well, right? There are things that we get caught up in that we devote ourselves to, that we put our energy into, that can either divert us away from the work the Spirit is doing in us or the work we should be doing to further God's kingdom. And that's something that we just need to be aware of. So there's a lot we can still learn from this church in Ephesus almost 2,000 years later. So let's have a couple scripture examples of what the church should have looked like, right? Instead of these leaders, probably the people as well, you know, focusing on these genealogies, teaching false doctrines, 
um, leading people astray. If we look in Romans 14, 16 through 19, we'll get a little bit of a look there. And this is in the context of the weaker brother, but it, it's again, it's about how people relate to one another inside a church setting, especially when we're talking about sort of these genealogies and myths, these, uh, these things coming from the Jewish tradition. So Romans 14, 16 through 19, do not, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of, of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So that should be one of the focuses as believers in the church as we're relating to each other, right? What we see with the church in Ephesus was quite the opposite. The focus wasn't on righteousness. It wasn't on mutual edification. It wasn't on building people up to do those good works. If we look at Ephesians 4, 15 through, oh, sorry, Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, we get probably a little bit of an even better look at it um, as Paul talks about this. Because he, he gets a little bit closer to home on this, which you know, you, you'd figure because it's Paul writing these things. And he goes on further to say, if we look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So there Paul puts even a finer point on it, right, about what the focus of the church is. And if we look at that passage and we look at what was happening in the church at Ephesus, you can see some of the, some of the problems that were occurring, right? Um, you know, we do see things about they're not building each other up. It's the endless controversies. Why are people being led astray by the false doctrine, right? Because they're not being discipled. They're not being built up into Christ to walk more like him, right? So that, that's neglectfulness um, on the, well, not just on the part of the leaders, but on the body as a whole, right? So that's not happening. And if you notice that last part in 15, as, as Paul talks about this, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him. And that's a very important passage there, right? Because it 
shows what the aim is, not just here in 1 Timothy, but that's a constant theme you see from Paul when he's talking to churches, right, to, to correct them or to guide them. He goes on from Ephesians, if we go back to our passage in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy what the point of this is, right? He's, he's called out what their wrong focus is about teaching false doctrines, you know, of not devoting themselves to these genealogies and myths, causing controversies, which is, you know, basically division and, and conflict, not unity. But back in 1 Timothy, we see Paul write that the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right, so what he's talking about there is, you know, the love comes from these three things. So he says the command is love. What, what is the command? The command that Paul is giving to Timothy to pass on to these, these leaders in the church of Ephesus is don't teach false doctrine, right? That, um, that leads people astray. It doesn't build them up. Don't be devoted to these myths and genealogies, right? That's focusing on the wrong thing instead of focusing on the word of God, right? So again, their focus was off. Don't promote controversies around the genealogies or other things. Why? Because that causes disunity. That causes people to have conflicts and factions over things that aren't scripturally based. There is absolutely a place and a time when we put a stake in the sand and say, no, this is what the Word of God says. This is scripturally sound. But, you know, Matt's used the example a lot about the concentric circles, right, where you have those things that are core to the doctrine and the faith. Those are the ones that are non-negotiable. You know, as we start getting further out to things that maybe are specific to our denomination or our personal beliefs, you know, I mean, I'll argue with anybody, dogs go to heaven. Yes, our little beagle and coonhound will be there. That's just my belief. Um, because God made the animals, why wouldn't they be there too? But is that core to our, our doctrine, our beliefs? Is it core to salvation? No. So we can argue over those things, but the, the core things we cannot. And that's what was happening here in the church in Ephesus. And if we really look at what Paul said, he said, what is the goal of this command? It's love, right? Those three things they were doing that get called out here are not promoting love and unity for each other or for God, right? It's, it's putting the focus in the wrong place. So Paul is putting this correction in here for a couple of reasons, right? He's focusing in on love being the root of all this, which is correct. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but he's... He's expounding on something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? So in, if you're taking notes, you can make note of this, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Um, I'm sorry, I, I got ahead of myself. Uh, th this is actually when, um, when the teachers of the law were trying to trip Jesus up by saying, hey, what, what's the greatest command? Right, because, you know, there's just, hey, oh, we got him here. And Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. 
right? So Paul is instructing this church, like, look, what you guys are doing, you're not following the greatest command or the second one, right? You're, you're, you've got your focus wrong. You're looking at the wrong, wrong things here. But then he goes on further, and he says that this can only be done with three things, right? As we see there in, in verse 5, you know, it can be done with a, a pure heart, with a good conscience and sincere faith. So what does it mean to have a pure heart? You know, we, we know that we are, we have a sinful nature. We're born sinful. We inherit that from Adam, from the original sin of rebellion. And you don't have to look far to see that even at a young age, we display those, those behaviors. We have to be taught to follow in God's way, right? So it's a heart that's regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's what a pure heart is. So again, another um, jump in scripture. If we look at 2 Timothy 2, 20, uh, 2, 22, and 23. It's a lot of twos in there. 2 Timothy 2, 22, and 23. And this is going to be just a couple examples of what it looks like to have a pure heart. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call out, excuse me, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. You can hear some echoes of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Different contexts in the letters, right? In 2 Timothy, it's more about how to live a holy life, what the church should look like, etc. Enduring under persecution, some things like that. But you see the echoes there, right? I mean, he's talking about calling onto the Lord out of a pure heart. You know, we, we don't pursue God unless he first regenerates our heart. He opens our mind, our eyes, our ears to his truth. <clears throat> that gives us a pure heart. And this is the one that I got ahead of myself on. Jesus says a similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In uh, Matthew 5, 6 through 9, he talks about, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, right, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So again, you see Jesus's focus here when he's talking on the Sermon on the Mount, right, about a pure heart. Those are the pure hearts seeing God. That's only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. But you see the other things in there that he talks about of people being blessed for being peacemakers, not causing controversies, not leading people astray, not impeding the work or trying to impede the work the Holy Spirit's doing in them or impede them from doing God's work. So that's what a pure heart is. And that's where that is a necessity for doing those good works. He goes on to say, 
and a good conscience. You know, I was surprised um, how many times the word conscience shows up in the New Testament. I guess I've never really focused on it or paid attention to it, but there are lots of passages that talk about a good conscience, right? So, so I mean, what is a conscience, by the way, right? It, it's, have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, I made the right decision, I've got a clean conscience, you know, I, I don't have any guilt, and that can be a believer or a non-believer, right? Because they feel they've done the right thing. And that's, that's really what a conscience is. God created us with that knowledge of good and evil, right? We, we know we have a moral law. We know when we're doing something right and we're doing something wrong. We know when we're following what the scripture tells us and when we're not. We know when we're operating outside of God's will and when we are not. Um, even people who are not believers know when they're doing something right or wrong. So, you know, there, there is a, I don't want to get too deep into this one, um, but there, there definitely is a, an absolute moral law, right? Um, and we know whether we're a believer or non-believer when we're following that. Just we don't always know the, the source of it unless we know the scripture and God's opened our eyes to the truth. That's when we know. And so having a good conscience is not feeling guilt, right? And that could be guilt for sin, for actions, etc. Let's jump over to Hebrews for a little bit. There's a couple of passages in here. Again, make note of these if you would, because they'll come back up, and they're really foundational as we start looking at a healthy church, what a church should look like how a church should behave. And again, when I say church, I don't mean the building, I mean us, you know, the people. So we'll hit, a, we'll hit two of them that talk about a conscience, what our conscience should be like. So Hebrews 9.14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. So that passage, I mean, he's talking about our conscience being cleaned, right? That, that's that part where the work of the Spirit in us, when we're washed by the blood of Jesus for the work he did on the cross, we're forgiven of our sins. Right? We don't carry that guilt with us anymore. Now, the enemy will tell you all kinds of things. You know, that, oh, you know, God can't forgive you. You're a terrible person. Or God could never love you. You're a terrible person. Or you've done this. You're lost. You'll hear those things, and he will try to, to use those, right? But we know that as believers, our conscience is clean. If we are faithful to confess our sins, because we're always going to be sinners, and ask for forgiveness. And that's how we can operate out of a clean conscience. Knowing that we're recognizing our sin, we're asking forgiveness for that. Jumping a little further to Hebrews 10, 22 through 24. We see this. The writers of Hebrews 
says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Doesn't that verse capture all three of those elements that we're talking about in Timothy? Having a clean conscience, you know, having a pure heart. He gets there towards the end, you know, having um, unswerving, let us hold unswerving to the hope we profess. That's talking about the faith. Right, so these are two passages that we look at that as members of the universal church of God, of believers in Christ, how we should have a pure heart, we should have a clean conscience, we should have a sincere faith. I like some of the, the older translations use the word unfeigned, an unfeigned faith. Um, and you know, basically, if you're feigning something, you're just pretending, right? So it, it's saying your, your faith is sincere, that you're not just putting on a show, as, as we've seen some examples in, in scripture where people do that, right, to try to fit in with the church, and um, Simon Magnus comes to mind, um, or Magus, and you know, people who wanna be part of the, the body, but they're not really true believers. So that's what they're talking about here, sincere, honest faith. But what is biblical faith, right? We talk about that sometimes. You know, what does it mean to, to have faith? You know, the passage right there just said it, um, hold on unswervingly to the, to the hope that we have. Right, a lot of the times in our day and age, and probably in the past as well, you know, people would talk about, you know, you just have to have faith, you just have to believe. But have faith in what? That everything will just work out, that the universe will work things for your good, you know, things like that. You'll hear a lot of that today, um, especially with people who don't, don't understand. I mean, if the Lord hasn't worked in their hearts yet, they don't know. They can't say trust in God. They can't say, you know, trust in his sovereignty, his providence. Um, so there's things that you'll hear where people just say, have faith, just believe. But it's what are you believing in? If we go a little bit further in Hebrews, there's a very clear definition of what that faith is. You know, again, referring back to uh, verse 5. But this one in Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, we see, now faith is being sure of what we hope, what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So right there very clearly says in the first one, in, in, in the first verse, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And what is it we hope for? What do we put our hope in? We put our hope in Christ, right? In the work that he's done for us. Because he is, the, as he said himself, he, he is the only way. That's what our faith is in. That's what our hope is in. And why is this important? 
We'll jump to one more passage, and it's 1 Peter 1, 21 through 23. And Peter says, Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So I would hold on to those passages, right? They, they all talk about our, our heart, our conscience, our faith. Those things that produce love that we should feel and express towards each other, towards God first, going back to the, the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, spirit, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, to paraphrase that. But it's, it's through what we see in these passages about being purified by the Holy Spirit. And that's the key point out of all this. I think to what Paul is getting at to Timothy. That only true believers have those things. Only true believers have a pure heart that's been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Who have a clear conscience because they know they've been forgiven of their sin and will continue to be. Right? And have a, a pure and unfeigned, a genuine faith in what they know to be true. Right? Again, all those things happen by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So if we jump back over to, to our main passage in 1 Timothy, we'll finish it up by reading 6 and 7. Because we see the result. Right? At first we saw you know, where their focus was, where this church's focus was. It was in the wrong place. Right, and we see what the correction was supposed to be. But we also see the result, right, because this is something that had been happening. You know, the, these problems a lot of the times don't get nipped in the bud. They, they start to grow and get very visible, and that's what brought it to Paul's attention, um, why he sent Timothy. So there had already been a lot of damage done, which is one of the reasons why not just us as elders, I mean, it is our primary responsibility to guard the doctrine, but it's everyone's responsibility to hold each other accountable to that. Right? For those of you who are with us when we were going through Malachi, back toward the beginning, what was some of the problem with, uh, with Israel at that point? The priests were teaching what they wanted, what people wanted to hear. They weren't teaching the law. Right? They weren't teaching about God. And the people weren't holding them accountable to that. Right? So the, the priests in Malachi weren't loving God. They weren't loving the people. The people weren't loving each other because they just were like, hey, they're telling us what we want to hear. We like this. And neither one of them were loving God because they were being disobedient. So we see that kind of translated over here into this church at Ephesus as well a lot of those similar things happening. So going back to Timothy, 
the result, some have wandered away from from these, excuse me, some have wandered away from these, these being what we talked about in verse 5, and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So what we see out of this is, and again, kind of translating this to our modern day, where we don't have to look far to see churches that are in trouble because of doctrinal compromise, because of people with the wrong focus, um, other issues that come up that we see here. The teachers weren't taking seriously what they were commissioned to do. When I say commissioned, I mean called by God to teach these people. They weren't taking it seriously. Right again, they were teaching false doctrine, which is likely they were doing, they were, they were teaching things that people wanted to hear rather than what God's word said. Um, they were probably getting into meaningless debates. We, we definitely see that here um, in, in these following passages. We believe that they're talking only about the leaders here, but it's likely they weren't just talking about leaders. Right, because they talk about people who want to be teachers. So it's probably not just those who were appointed to be teachers. It was likely also other people in the body who thought, well, you know, I want to be a teacher too. So I'm going to start talking about things. I'm going to profess all these things, even though they didn't really know what it was that they were talking about. It was foolishness that they were speaking. Right, again, going back to that they didn't have a sound doctrine, and they were just teaching whatever it was that they, they wanted to, to talk about because they could do it very confidently. Um, and again, there were people there in the congregation who weren't holding each other accountable for that, or the teachers. So there was a lot of dysfunction in that, in that church. Rather than focusing on the work of Christ and furthering God's kingdom, we see that their focus was on themselves. And that's easy for all of us to fall into, right? I know me personally, I, I can put my focus on myself a lot. I'm a selfish person, honestly. Um, there's lots of times when I, I wanna do what I wanna do. I don't wanna do other things. I don't wanna serve other people. Um, you know, that's part of our sinful nature. That's part of us being fallen people. We're, we're selfish. Um, we're prideful. We all are. And that can take our focus off what we're called to do, right, of putting God first, our devotion on Christ, rather than ourselves. So what we see in these passages, again, th this is laying the foundation for this whole study in 1 Timothy. What we see in 1 Timothy, in those verses that we just went through, through that passage, we see a church in trouble, right? In 3 through 7, we see a church that had lost its way. And we know that people had lost their way because we're told that in 6 and 7. 
right, because of what had done. But we also see what the correction is. And the passages that we went through today, again, we're going we're gonna to visit those again as we go through this whole study. Um, but I would say, you know, if you're taking notes, make note of those and read through them, meditate on them, you know, see what the Lord would say to you as you go through those and where you as an individual or a member of this body may need to, you know, course correct. Um, and I'm going to do the same, obviously, because I'm no different than, than anyone else. I mean, I, I need to be reminded, I need to look at these things of how to be more like Christ every day and how to be faithful and to serve him and y'all. So that's, that's an important thing because we see a church that lost her way, but then we also see this is what you need to have to get back on track, to course correct. Right? We see that part about the, um, the pure heart, the clean conscience, the unfeigned genuine faith. And how do we have those? Scripture tells us. So we'll go ahead and end on that one, on that note. It's going to be a, a good study in First Timothy. Not only because it's relevant to us as a church body here today in this local representation of the church, but also because, again, you don't have to look far to see churches that are in trouble. You don't have to look far to see people who are in trouble, right? Because the people are the church. But what we see is that if we are believers, we are children of God, if the Holy Spirit has worked in us, if our faith is in Christ and his work and in that alone, there's hope. He is our hope. So no matter what happens, no matter how far we get off track, we know we're told in scripture how to get back on track, how to keep our focus and, and maintain our focus. So as individuals and as a church body, let us just do that today, going forward, as we're going through this season as the, as the Grove Church, um, let us just hold fast to our hope and our belief. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. Lord, you, you called us out of darkness to be your people. For those who have placed their faith in you, there is hope. And we're not always going to get it right. We know that. We, we know that we are fallen creatures, but we look forward to, to glorification when we will see you for who you are, see you face to face when this dead and dying world will fall away. And Lord, we will just know the truth. We, we will truly know the truth. But until then, we just pray that you would open our hearts and minds, strengthen us as we are on this journey, this, this constant journey of sanctification to become more and more like you. And we just thank you. Thank you for the work that you've done for our salvation. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to be more like you, to love one another, but first and foremost, to love you above all else, that we may be examples to a, a dark and a dying world. And Father, help us to be an example individually and corporately 
of what your body should look like here on earth. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, just, It's going to be a good study as we get into Timothy. So for those of you who are normal attenders, um, look forward to seeing what Matt will bring next week um, as we dig more into this. For those visiting with us, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, it's always a blessing to have people join us. And um, just for the folks at Coldstream, um, thank you for what you all are doing for spreading the love and good news of Jesus Christ to people who don't know him. Keep up the good work. Fight the good fight. Um, it's not always easy, I know, uh, when you're trying to share your faith with people, but what you're doing has eternal impacts on people's lives. So thank you so much for doing that. And I would just say to everyone in closing, go connect in communities and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with everybody you meet today. You're dismissed. <laughs>